You're listening to audio from New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. We are a gospel-centered church with a heart for the next generation, passionate about making disciples who will renew our city in the real Jesus. For more information about New City, please visit our website at www.mynewcity.church. Good morning. Uh, my name is Archer Garan. I'm going to be reading scripture this morning. Uh, today's teaching text is from Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 52. It's on page 858 in the Pew Bible. Please stand in honor of God's word. The boy Jesus in the temple. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing to him be in the group, they went a day's journey. But when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And when they came to Nazareth, they were submissive, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature, and in favor with God and man. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Archer. Appreciate you, buddy. Um, Yeah, we'll move this back here, pal. Thanks. Well... I'm glad to be here this morning. I'm glad to open God's word with you. Thank you so much, Archer. Um, This is not a church that we planted for the next generation. This is a church of the next generation. This is Archer's church as much as it's my church. And so I'm grateful for you serving today, buddy. And if you're a kid in this room, um, serving all all the stuff is for you, okay? And so I'm glad you're here. This is the rhythm section right here. We got a good group of kids up here that I'm always excited to hang out with. Um, This passage, man, we've been trucking through uh, Luke chapter 2 as we've been celebrating Advent. Um, Advent just means the coming or the arrival of someone very important. And so during the Advent season, we reflect on what it means that Christ actually came into the world. That's what we've been uh, doing over these past several weeks. And this week, man, we arrived to a passage that shows us the extent of the incarnation. The word incarnation, if you don't know what it means, if that sounds like a big theological word, here's, here's what helps me remember it. Um, you know what carne asada is, right? I have some friends who know what carne asada is, right? Um, <laughs> meat or beef, is that what carne means? Okay, so uh, I'm, I'm not gonna get into the translation details. I'm more in Greek and Hebrew than I am Spanish. Um, but, but nevertheless, it means meat, it means flesh, right? And so when we talk about the incarnation, here carne asada, God literally put flesh on his bones. He became a person. I didn't mean for that to be irreverent. I was trying to help, okay? I was trying to help you remember what incarnation means. But this morning, we're realizing the extent of the fact that Jesus became an actual person. I mean, Jesus wasn't sort of a person, Okay, he was more than a person, as we're going to discover through this passage, but he was not less. Oftentimes, when we think about Jesus coming into the world, we think, okay, yeah, he was really human, but he can't relate. I mean, honestly, like, have you ever thought about Jesus' brothers, like James? Uh, think of discipline in their home where James gets in trouble and, he's, and Mary's like, James, why can't you be more like your brother? And he goes, like, Mom, he's the son of God. Like, what are you expecting from me? 
That's kind of our vision of Jesus, that he can't relate to actually being human. But the scriptures teach us here and other places very clearly that Jesus inhabited an actual real flesh and bone body. Why does this matter? Well, at least in part, here's why it matters. God is always acting perfectly out of his identity. In other words, God does out of his being. And if God became a person, that tells us something very, very important about his nature, about who he is, and therefore what he can accomplish. Let's think about this for just a moment together. If God is not loving in his being, if that's not who he is, how could he perform the action of saving? He couldn't, right? He does out of his being. If, if Jesus does not become truly human, how can he pay for human sin? How can he actually be the great exchanger of eternal debts? God is always acting out of his being. Friends, who Jesus is, who he actually is, matters. And it matters especially at Christmas. When we see verses like this and we see the kind of person that Jesus both was and is, it really changes everything. Here's the one thing that I want you to remember from this text. If you just remember one thing this morning, remember this. Jesus couldn't do what he did without being who he is. Your redemption, his going up to bat against sin, death, and hell, he couldn't have pulled it off without being completely and totally who he is. And so over the next few minutes together, what I want us to do is just reflect on the identity of Christ, who he is. That's what I want us to think about this morning. Now, when I ask the question, who is Jesus? Inevitably, a phrase or a picture comes into your head, right? Do you think of the, the strange pictures or paintings from the 70s and 80s where Jesus has like feathered hair, perfectly manicured, sort of floating along, do you think of Jesus as the warrior king from Revelation riding on sword back, sword drawn? That's the Jesus I like to think about. I want you to bring the picture into your mind of who you think he is because this text, it might challenge some of those assumptions. It might challenge you to think differently and more biblically about who he is. So let's get after it. Two points. Two points today. Jesus is human is point number one. We'll talk about it. Um, and point number two, Jesus is more. He's more. Let's start back. Point number one, Jesus is human. Starting in verse 41, back in the text, it says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to his custom. <clears throat> Jesus' parents are devout Jews. Like they're committed. Think of, think of the kind of people that, have you heard the phrase like, every time the doors of the church were open, they were there, right? Some of you may describe that that's the way that you grew up, right? Um, some of us from maybe traditional church background, it was like Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday, some other oddly named club or thing that I was a part of at church, and then another time just to be sure, right? Um, these were devout Jews. They were committed. And here's how we know. Um, it says right here that every year they would go to Jerusalem um, for the feast of the Passover. Um, now, for devout Jewish men, this was a normal practice to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of the Passover. Um, but for Jewish women at the time, because they were usually home caring for children, it wasn't a requirement of the law that they come up. But nevertheless, right here we see Mary and Joseph are going together to the Passover. This tells us this, this is not your average Jewish family. They believe the scriptures. They are committed to walking with the God of the Bible. And they're headed there to celebrate what's called the Feast of the Passover. Now, as they're walking into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, there's so much significant that's going on around them. 
I want you to try for a moment to picture the sights and the sounds and the smells of Jerusalem around the Passover. See, um, the Passover had a ton of significance to the Jewish people. The Passover was a feast celebrating that when the people were enslaved in Egypt and God sent the plagues. So if you've um, read uh, the book of Exodus, you see where God delivers them out of the, under the hand of Egypt. And the last and final plague, the, the sort of straw that finally broke the camel's back, the hammer blow that came and released them out, was that God sent an angel of death to take the firstborn son of every family in Egypt whose doorframe was not covered by the blood of a sacrificial lamb. Now, if that's not foreshadowing of the redemptive work of Jesus, I don't know what is, right? The divine son instead sacrifices himself. Um, and so as God passed over, as the angel of death passed over the homes of those who had the blood of the lamb on the doorposts, um, and havoc was wreaked in these other homes, finally Pharaoh relented and let the people out of Egypt. And so this feast of the Passover was to remember when God passed over judgment when he chose not to judge his people. So there's so much significance right here. And part of the rituals of Passover was that um, yearly sacrifices would happen in the temple and temple courts. And so imagine the sights of Jesus and his family walking into town. There are, there are sheep and goats and doves and bulls walking everywhere, crammed through the streets of the city walking nearer and nearer undoubtedly to the temple, the smell of iron and blood in the air from the sacrifice. Has anybody ever been deer hunting in the room? Okay, a few of us, right? You know that, that smell of the blood of an animal. Picture that filling the city. It's really a kind of a morbid scene in some ways. And after these sacrifices were made, particularly of the, the lambs that were sacrificed, they would take the lambs home and they would roast them wrapped up in pomegranates and bitter herbs because they wanted to remember the bitterness of slavery in Egypt. So there's all of this pregnant meaning in, in Passover. And, and this wasn't just any old Passover either. This was a big year for the boy Jesus. Notice the text tells us in verse 42 that he was 12 years old coming up to um, the Passover. In Jewish culture, at 13, he would become a man. He would be considered part of the group of men rather than the group of children. In modern Jewish culture, you've probably heard of like a bar mitzvah, right? Um, a celebration of a man's coming of age. The, uh, the bar mitzvah wasn't quite invented here. We're about 500-ish years before the bar mitzvah here. Um, but nevertheless, there was a distinct rite of passage to say um, that Jesus was going to become a man at this point. And Drew, Jewish tradition instructed fathers to take their sons to the Passover the few years leading up to their actually becoming a man. And so imagine the excitement right? Think of like, I'm going on a trip with my dad, right? I'm going to go into the woods a boy and I'm going to come out of the woods a man. This is an exciting moment for Jesus. This is a tradition in the life of the Jewish people that notice Jesus does not reject. Like oftentimes in some Christian circles, we can hear words like tradition and we automatically go, traditions are bad, they're meaningless. We need to get away from tradition so we can get back to pure gospel religion or something. But, but the pictures seem, at least in some part, to paint a different picture right here. Don't miss this, the Lord, Jesus, values things like legacy, tradition, and celebration. That's particularly important around Christmas time, right? These little traditions that you have with your friend group or your family, these are, these are ways, um, what uh, the, the philosopher Charles Taylor would call thick practices that help to teach us about the gospel. 
right? So in, in, in my home, um, this is how we do it. This isn't how you have to do it. But um, for us, we, uh, after dinner every night, we, uh, we gather for, uh, we do bath, and then we gather in the living room for family worship. And so it's just absolute chaos, okay? I don't want you to picture order. I want you to picture like in the Old Testament where you see David like throw his clothes off and like get down. That's what family worship looks like at the Vulcaning house. Okay? Just the kids, all right? Um, <laughs> we gather in the living room and we sing and we dance and everybody has instruments and we're shaking the instruments and we're dancing. And, and then we stop and we practice a little question from, a, we do a kid's catechism, which are just questions to teach the basic faith. And, and then after that, um, we read an Advent story a story from the Jesus Storybook Bible about the coming of Christ. And we pray for our kids, and then they go to bed, sometimes willingly, sometimes unwillingly. But it's, it's simple stuff, right? But over a lifetime of a child hearing the gospel again and again and again and, and dancing joyfully around the Lord in a living room, my prayer, my desire is that that forms my kids into particular type of people. Now, these aren't just practices that are meant to form children, right? They're meant to form us. The Lord uses the practices of his people to form them, okay? And so I want you to evaluate, especially this season, are the practices of this season intentional? Are they forming me into the type of person that looks at Jesus more and more and goes, I am so glad that you're my king. This is a time to ask, are your intentions, are your um, traditions intentional? There's another thing that this tells us, I think, that, that Jesus travels with his parents up to the Passover. Um, friends, there is no non-spiritual part of life. Like oftentimes we can have sort of this segmented view of reality where we go, this is work life, this is family life, and this is spiritual life over here. And they're kind of all spokes of a wheel. And I'm just trying to keep balance in the wheel. But really, the spiritual life, the life walking with God, is not a spoke of the wheel. It's the whole wheel. Um, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, um, we get what's called the Shema. It's this um, reminder to the Jewish people that says, Hear, O Israel, listen, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I want you to um, put this truth on the doorpost of your house. So every time you walk through, right, you reach up and you tap the scriptures and you remember the good news. I want you to teach your children as you're walking down the road and as you're lying down and as you're getting up in all the normal parts of life. I want the truth of the word of God to shape and inform you. And so friends, um, you are not just an employee. You are a Christian employee. Um, you are not just a parent. You are a Christian parent. You are not just a son or a daughter. You are a Christian son or a daughter. You are not just a friend. You are a Christian son or a friend. Who God is informs every bit of your life. Don't chop it up into categories. Let Christ rule and reign over all of it. There's no non-spiritual part of life. Look at the next verse in the text. In verse 43, it says, And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Okay, we read this as modern parents and modern people. And if you're honest, don't you look at this and go, how could you not know? Like, come on, guys. Like, you, you had one job, right? You have one, you have one kid to keep track of, and he's the son of God, and you lost him? Like, come on, guys. Seriously. Man, don't we feel that? Until you watch the movie Home Alone, and then you get it, right? It's like, of course. 
It's easy to do. How could they not know? So we realize here from, from the text and beyond that when I'm traveling for the Passover, what happened, this was a caravan of people, right? There's, there's all kinds of people traveling together, and it was not uncommon for children um, to walk with their friends or their cousins or just picture a mass herd of people and chaos. And so, of course, especially at this time, they're going to assume, yeah, Jesus is probably over. Um, He's probably over with John the Baptist. I don't think they called him that yet, but um, (laughs) he's probably over hanging out with John. Um, And so we'll just keep rocking and rolling. So it's easy for them right here to not realize that Jesus is with them. I think there's an important question we have to ask of the text right here. The verse tells us in verse 43 um, that Jesus stays behind. Does Jesus sin here? It's okay to ask honest questions of the Bible like, man, is Jesus really, was he disobedient right here? Don't, Don't mistake, the New Testament hinges on the answer to that question. Like, does Jesus sin here? Because if he's not sinless, he can't take on the sins of the world. It really, really matters. Here's, here's something to reflect on and that I want you to see that's true from this text. Twelve-year-old naivete is not willful disobedience, okay? As, as much as some of you, if you have any 12-year-old children, you're like, oh, it's disobedience. <laughs> it's not, okay? It's just not. I was reminded of this. It's funny. This this week, I was I was literally at this point writing the sermon, and um, Aaron and Jen McCann, who coach um, our kid city teams, they were here working on some things, and so there were children running all over the building. Which it's fun when you're preparing a sermon to get an unexpected visit from like fun kids. It's awesome, and uh, and so they came in and hung out in my office for just a minute, and then um, they were out out here and I could hear some noise and then it got really quiet, which with children, that's when you know, okay? It's not the noise that you should be afraid of. It's the lack of noise that you should be afraid of. And so I was like, I'm going to go check this out. And I walked over here into the conference room and my dear son, Bennett, he had a K-cup for the Keurig and he had he had opened the Keurig, punctured the top, and he was pouring the hot chocolate over the top of the Keurig, okay? And I come in, and at fir- my first question is not how could you, it's why, right? I'm just, I'm just wondering the logic of this decision. And right, if, if you've had to discipline a small child, whether you're a parent or not, you know the feeling when a kid is doing something crazy and you feel like your guts tighten up at first, like, ah, I gotta stop this and I need you to be better at, what, at life or whatever is going on. And, and, and so... I thank God in this moment I was able to, t- there was another kid there, right? So it makes you a little better parent, right? Um, and so I took a deep breath. I, I prayed for just a second. I was like, buddy, what are you doing? And he said, I was just curious about how the coffee machine worked. And I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you're way off, like <laughs> you're not doing it right. But I understand you're just naive. Right? He wasn't trying to be rebellious. He wasn't trying to be mean. As a parent, so often, I want my children to just be convenient. And that's what I end up calling a sin, is inconvenience. But no, it's not. It's just naivete. It's just being simple. Um, And right here, Jesus is an actual 12-year-old boy. Right? He's just being 12. Anybody else remember being 12? Were you at your best? Did you know what to do? You thought you did, and so did I, but boy, were we wrong. Don't miss this, New City. It is not human nature that makes a person sinful. It is a sin nature that makes a person sinful. See, Jesus didn't have to repent of being a human And he also didn't have to repent of being a sinner. I want you to hear this this morning. You don't repent of your humanity. Um, You're going to be human in the new heavens and new earth. Um, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, I believe, talks about you will be given a resurrection body 
okay? Flesh and blood, skin and bones. Um, this Christ that we are observing in this text right now, he's ruling and reigning, guess what? In a body. When he added humanity to his divinity, he never took that body off. Jesus isn't a ghost now. He's got hands that you can grab onto. He is a flesh and blood king. And so, um, if it's not human nature that makes us sinful, but it is a sin nature, this has implications for both us and for our understanding of who Jesus is. I want you to look at this helpful chart that my friend Michael built us for a second. I want us to look at our sin nature for just a moment. Think about this. From Ephesians 2, the text says, by nature... We are children of wrath. Because of our sin nature, we are positioned under the wrath of God. But now I want you to think for a moment about who Jesus is. Jesus is not a child of wrath. He is the Son of God. He's the Son of God. This means that where you are under wrath, Jesus is under blessing and the joy of the Father. Friends, you and I, we're not only sinners, um, but we're good at it, right? We're creative. It's why the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, when he says, um, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and any other thing that you can think of, right? <laughs> because he's like, I know I'm going to make a list, and then this one guy is going to walk in the back and be like, what about this? And he's going to be like, not that. Stop. Ah. People, we're so frustrating, right? We're creative sinners, but look at what the scriptures say about Jesus. He committed no sin. Neither was there sin found in his mouth. That's from 1 Peter chapter 2. While we're creative at sinning, Jesus is creative at righteousness. Like he innovates ways to please the heart of his father. You and I know sin the way that a husband knows a wife. We have intimacy with sin. We're familiar with it. We know how to do it. We're actually experts at it. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, um, says of Jesus that he who knew no sin, had no intimacy with sin, became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. See, there's... There's a big exchange of nature right here. See, if Jesus, if this is who he is, the son of God, who is sinless, who knows no sin, and you and I on our own are children of wrath, we're creative sinners, and we know sin, and Jesus gives us his credit, look at the exchange here. Like, can you imagine for a moment the list being flipped around? Is that stuff actually true of Jesus, that he's a child of wrath or a creative sinner or no sin? No, 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 that's not true of Jesus. But guess what? He made it true of himself to redeem you. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Only a truly human Jesus can pay for our sin debt. Friends, because Jesus is human, he can sympathize with your tug towards sin. Jesus was tempted. The scriptures tell us that he was tempted without sin. He knows what it's like to want to lie just a little bit, to make yourself look a little bit better or a little further along than you are. He knows the temptation to cut corners in your work and not do it with integrity or diligence. He knows the, the pull and the temptation of um, using your anger to get people in your life to comply. He knows all of those temptations. But here's the thing about Jesus. He proved faithful in all of it. He was tempted to sin just like you and I were, but he never did. This means, friends, because you have a deliverer, you have a champion who proved faithful, it means you've got a champion who can deliver you. It means you've got some hope this Christmas. You don't just have a human Jesus who is as bad as you. No, you've got a human Jesus with sure footing who can grab you by the hand and pull you up out of the pit. You have a capable 
Savior, New City Church. Look later on in the text, after this, this moment happens, Jesus does not sin, but he's, he's 12, right? And in verse 46, it says, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Can you imagine the worry? Now, in, in Jewish time, this is probably inclusive, right? So they leave town, that's day one. They turn back, that's day two. At day three, they get into town and they find Jesus. Can you imagine the fear of not knowing where your child or someone that you love so dearly is? And Mary comes in. And man, she, imagine her saying, where have you been, young man? Like as, as a mother would say to a child, what is Jesus doing during this time? He's sitting, he's listening to the teachers, he's asking questions, he's wrestling with the scriptures, he's learning. And, and notice bef before this, during the Passover, it was like eight days of intensive learning and study and thinking about the things of God. And Jesus, as a 12-year-old, gets to eight days of that, and he's so hungry for more that he stays locked in without even realizing that his parents were gone. At this point, we're probably up to somewhere between 10 and 11 days of Jesus ferociously studying the Word of God. You see, Jesus right here... He has to learn in his mind the very scriptures that he inspired. Isn't that strange? Like he has to use a brain to go, these, oh yeah, these, these are the words. Right? I remember pinning these with my father. I remember singing these into existence. Jesus' heart came alive at the scriptures. And here's some something that's like so enjoyable to me to think about right now. When you study the scriptures, you get to enjoy the passion of Jesus with him. Like when you're studying the scriptures, you get to sit down with this king who loves the book. He loves it. And every time you sit down with the scriptures, you get to join Jesus in his passion. Just this beautiful thing. And Mary comes in and she reprimands him, right? What in the world are you doing? Now, had Jesus actually sinned? No, Jesus hadn't sinned. But at this point in the story, when mom comes in and says, what in the world have you been doing? What would most typical 12-year-olds do in their response? They would sin, right? It would sound like some version of this that we've all been guilty of, okay? I didn't do anything, right? <laughs> Whining, right? Whining and complaining. Why are you getting on my case about this? I didn't do anything at all, right? Most typical 12-year-olds would do that. Jesus is not a typical 12-year-old. And that's where we get to point number two. Jesus is more. Look at verse 49 in the text. It says, and he said to them, this is Jesus, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Okay, notice here. Jesus does two things in response to Mary's reproof. Number one, he's confused. It's like he's not being condescending right here. He's like, I don't, I don't know why you're looking for me. I... I belong here. This is where I'm supposed to be. And that confusion, it reveals a couple of things to us. Number one, that he's actually a 12-year-old boy, right? Because you look at this and you're like, bro, why is she confused? She hasn't been able to find you for three days, right? But more than that, right here, something is revealed. Jesus does something that no individual in the history of Israel had done. 
He called God his personal father. Now the nation of Israel as a whole had called God father or people had called um, God Abraham's father. But no individual have ever said God is my father and I am his son. And when Jesus goes into the temple, he hears his father's word and his heart just leaps. He's animated by it. He's energized by it. He can't get enough of it to the point that it is completely obvious to him that that's where he belongs. So when mom and dad come looking, he's like, why wouldn't you know I'm here? Where else would I be other than just enjoying the words of my father? See, here's something beautiful. We are getting a peek behind the curtain of not just Jesus in flesh, but the eternal Christ. The Father and Son have always belonged together. I want you to think about your God for just a moment this morning, New City. That God, as the scriptures teach, is one God personified in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so um, God the Father doesn't have a son the way that you and I would get a son, right? By conceiving or giving birth or adopting. He's always had a son. They have always been in perfect father-son relationship. And a good way to think about who the Holy Spirit is, is the love that exists between the father and son, the personal personified love. Father, son, and Holy Spirit have always belonged together. John chapter 1 verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, read the father, who is at the Father's side, um, sorry, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So this, fa- this son who loves his father is the one who makes known this God in the world. Friends, what you need to understand about Jesus this morning is that he is not merely a man. He is human. He's really human, but he is the God-man. He is fully god and fully man. I mean, when we hear a statement like that, if we're honest, sometimes we can go, man, that's, that's really cool, good for Jesus, but isn't that something that like um, theologians who have uh, extremely wide heads, like they spend time reflecting on, but what does that mean for a normal size headed person like me? <laughs> when you understand the love that exists between the Father and the Son in the Holy Spirit. And then you go on and you read the scriptures and you find that the scriptures would call you, Christian, in Christ. I'm telling you, maybe more than any other doctrine, this will change your life. When you see the beauty and the glory of the love between this Father and His Son, and then Jesus says to you, I want you to come be part of this with me. Not that you become God, but you get to become a recipient of that love. Man, when you live with that love as the operating system of your life, you're just different. You're just different. Are you struggling to change? Believe this and hear it this morning. You were made for loving union with God. And in Christ, it's yours. It belongs to you. As tempted as we are to believe this, friends, life is not what you get or even what you become. Life is mainly what you are. And if you are in Christ, you are the beloved of the Father. If you live a life just believing that and you don't accomplish a lot else, that's a really good stinking life. To be the beloved of God Man, when you know you're good in your core relationships, doesn't that come with an exhale, a freedom from anxiety? You're like, there's nothing between us. We're in, we're in good relationship. There's peace. Imagine the ultimate peace in the ultimate relationship. That's what comes when you recognize that you are united between this loving father and son. That could not have happened if Jesus was not both God and man. How does Jesus unite God and humanity by doing it in a single person, in himself? 
So we notice Jesus and his response to Mary here. Don't miss where we are, right? In the little episode, Jesus has come in and said, where in the world have you been? He's confused, right? It teaches us some things. Um, but then number two, what I want you to notice as we, as we start to wrap up here, that he submits to his parents. You know Jesus is God, right? When, I, when 12-year-old Jesus just goes, yes, father and mother, right? That's not the normal 12-year-old response, right? We've all been 12. But he honors the fourth commandment right here. Honor your father and mother that it might go well with you and you live long in the land. He honors the commandment because he loves his father, right? What pleases the heart of my father? Honoring the commands of my father. And so he does it. He's submissive to his parents. Now, a word like submission is a really popular word. Our culture loves the word submission, don't we? I'm... I'm joking, just a thank you. I appreciate the laugh. It was real, I could tell. <laughs> now our culture hates the word submission. Thinking about submitting to any other person, ooh, I don't like that. That's culturally true, but friends, if we're honest, that attitude towards submission can sneak into the church, can't it? Like this, this resistance to submitting, it's like, well, submit. Well, why? Who are you? What's that, right? You sort of get defensive when you hear words like submission. I just want to give you a couple of the greatest hits from scriptures <laughs> right here. Now, I'm going to bet you don't have a coffee cup with any one of these verses on it. Anybody? If you do, I would love to have one, okay? Wives, submit to your own husbands. No controversy there. Let's move on to the next one. Um, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, right? To one another, but doesn't that mean submitting to other sinners? Well, let's move on. Um, number three, obey your leaders. In First Peter, it says, or your pastors is what it's talking about, and submit to them. And like, that's convenient for you to say, Nick, like, I'm just bringing the mail, okay? I didn't write this. Submission gets a bad rap. But friends, here's what I want you to recognize this morning. Listen, submission is good. Submission is good. How do we know it's good? Because Christ did it. The most perfect human, the only perfect human who has lived in all of history, submitted himself to the will of the Father. The perfect incarnate Christ submitted himself to parents who are, I might remind you, sinners. What's your excuse? Do we have one left? If the perfect Christ submits to sinful parents? Friends, submission is not a problem. Submission is good for everybody. Friends, there is not a human being who has ever lived or ever will that does not need to submit ultimately to God and to others. This is a bit tangential, but it's worth saying right now. You know that if you are called to submit to your pastors, right, and you're submitting to us, guess what we're also doing? Submitting to God and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. There is nobody in the entire world who gets a carte blanche whammy who says, you better submit to me because I'm the final authority. The only person who gets to say that is Jesus. And look what he did during his time on earth. He submitted himself to the will of the Father. This should cause us to just stop and worship for a second. Who, who else but Jesus? Like goodness, what God submits himself in the world he created? Who does that? If I'm writing a screenplay, there's no way. Uh, a, a lot, two weeks ago, I got to see Black Adam with a friend, and it's this story of like demigod sort of like fantasy thing. And man, the whole premise is like that this, this God guy who comes into the world, he doesn't submit to anybody, and he's tough, and he's amazing. And Jesus, the actual savior of the world, doesn't exist like that. He's a father. He's a son submitted to a father's will. He's a human submitted to the pains of creation. Only Jesus is like this. Verse 52 tells us that Jesus increased in, faith, in wisdom and in stature 
and in favor with God and man. This literally means that he increased in good graces with the Father and with humanity. But here's who he is, New City. He is the one who traded those good graces with the Father and with man to cover your shame. That's the kind of man that Jesus is. He's the one, friends, who would go, this wouldn't be the last time that he went missing for three days, only this time he wouldn't be in the temple learning, he would be in the grave dead. He died for your death. Why did he do it? He did it because it's who he is. He is a savior. He is the savior. He experienced all the pains and the pulls of being a person so that you would not have to stand alone in your humanity. Why? Because it's who he is. This is the kind of savior. This is the kind of God that you worship. And friends, this morning you need to know that because he is who he is, you can be who you were created to be. The beloved of the Father accepted into the family. And if that's who you are, friends, you know what it means? It means you can submit joyfully to God this week, this, in this lifetime. It means when you're looking around at your life and you're like, man, I don't like the hand I was dealt. My relationships are hard. This didn't happen and I wanted it to happen. It means you can go, I'm, I'm trusting the will of my Father as it unfolds for me. And trust that he's not just father, but, or I'm sorry, that he's not just sovereign over things, but he is sovereign father. He's fathering me. You know what else happens when you live believing you were loved and accepted by this God? One, uh, you can live with people in an understanding way. Like, goodness, if you're the one who has to defend yourself and get people to respect you and believe in you and take you seriously, you better put your dukes up and get ready to fight. But man, if you were the beloved and accepted of the Father, you know what? If people are angry with you or frustrated with you, you don't have to bow to please other people. You have the approval of your Father. And friends, if you live beloved and accepted, hear me this, you will become like Jesus. Become like him. See, some of us are trying to become like Jesus without being beloved or accepted. And the soundtrack sounds something like this. I'm gonna do better. I know it, I know I, know I haven't done better every day but today I'm actually going to get it. And let's say you make it a day. You make it a week. You make it a month and you don't say the words you don't want to say or you don't do this or you don't do that or you do do this or you do do that. If it's just you, you're going to lose steam and you're going to implode. But if the love of God the Father for His Son is pouring through your life, you can actually change. What would it mean if from the heart you became a different person in 2023? If the hang-ups that keep you stuck, if the hurts that keep you from trusting the Lord, if the, the pain of a bad attitude in your life or in your job or your circumstances, if those things finally died and you lived beloved of the Father, it would change everything. It would change our church. It would change our relationships. It would change our city. And I'm just asking you not to do more today. I'm pleading with you from the life of Jesus who became a person to receive your belovedness. Receive the love of God this morning. Find transformation and rest for your souls. New City, Merry Christmas. I pray we believe this. Let's pray. Jesus, our King. I'm just so grateful. You lived perfectly. 
When I think about 12-year-old Nick, I think about somebody resistant to authority, somebody resistant, someone insecure in his identity. And Jesus, you, you weren't any of that as a 12-year-old. And you died for that 12-year-old Nick. And you died for that 12-year-old Kendall and Keith and Shelby and Will and Courtney and every person, God, in this room who has trusted in Christ. We reflect on your nature because we want to know you today. Help us to know you. Free us of the chains that keep us from receiving the love of God. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, dear friends, we don't just want to hear the word here. We want to respond to the word. And here in New City, we do that in a couple of key ways. Number one, we reflect. This is a time for you to ask the Lord, God, I've heard your word. What do you want me to do? Is there a new attitude? Is there a new belief? Is there a new... Um, command that you want me to obey with your power. Ask the Lord. Is there somebody in this room that you realize I need to be made right with that person? Don't wait. Don't wait and say, oh, after Christmas, I don't want to stress anybody out or stress myself out. No, no, no. Before you take the Lord's Supper this morning, I challenge you, go to that person if they're in this room and make it right. Forgive each other. Life is too short to be at odds with the people you love. Number two, we remember by taking the Lord's Supper. And when you come to either these two stations in the front or the two in the back and you find a little bit of juice and a little wafer, what I want you to remember is that the, the flesh of this 12-year-old boy grew into the flesh of a man who died willingly for your sins and for mine. And if you are a Christian, I want you to come to this table and thank the Lord for his death on your behalf. If you're not yet a Christian, I just invite you to stay in your seat and reflect. Ask God, what might it mean to, for the first time, receive the love of the Father? To say, I'm going to stop trying to fix myself and I'm going to receive the gospel, the good news, that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And then finally, friends, we rehearse. We rehearse the future when this king will be acknowledged by every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. And we celebrate and we rehearse that future by singing. And so, friends, I invite you to sing boldly and loudly this morning. New City, I love you. I really love being your pastor. It's such an honor. It really is. Um, respond when you're ready.